Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is your deep dive preview ahead of the March sitting. There's a lot going on in this upcoming two-week argument session that's scheduled to start March 23rd. We're recording this episode in the early afternoon on March 12th, and we just got an update from the court on how they're handling the coronavirus situation. Kimberly, what do we got? Well, the court just sent out a message uh, saying that they're going to be closing down the building effective today. Here's the statement that they put out. Out of concern for the health and safety of the public and the Supreme Court employees, the Supreme Court building will close to the public from 4.30 p.m. on March 12, 2020, until further notice. And they add that the building will remain open for official business and case filing deadlines are not extended. So, attorneys, get to work. Yeah, so I guess it... It raises some questions in terms of it doesn't say whether the actual arguments themselves are going to be affected. So as far as we know, it's still uh, game on for those, right? Well, it does say that it will continue official business. I think it seems like they're going to go ahead with arguments. But the question will be who's going to be allowed in with the press, the members of the bar. What about guests? I guess we'll have to see. And whether they allow any live streaming or same day audio, at least, if they aren't going to allow the public in. That's right. And so the Supreme Court is just the latest court to make changes based on the coronavirus. And our colleagues here at Bloomberg Law are doing a lot of good reporting on what other courts are doing. So be sure to check out news.bloomberglaw.com to stay up to date. At any rate, the the show must go on. Uh, We don't know what's going to happen. But in this scheduled March argument sitting, there are a bunch of good ones, including the much anticipated copyright clash between Google and Oracle. And we're going to take a closer look at that one in a future episode. But today, we're going to focus on a dispute that might grab even broader attention, the disputes over subpoenas for President Trump's financial records. The president has declined to release his tax returns in a break with a modern precedent, as most presidents have released their returns in recent decades. Now, um, we're under audit, uh, despite what uh, people said, and we're uh, working that out, as I'm always under audit, it seems, but I've been under audit for many years because the the numbers are big, and I guess when you have a name, you, you're audited. But uh, until such time as I'm not under audit, I would not be inclined to do that. Thank you. His administration has also broadly resisted cooperation in congressional inquiries, including ones potentially touching on the president's finances. And so this issue presents actually three cases that will be argued back to back in arguments on March 31st. The first argument involves subpoenas from the U.S. House of Representatives to an accounting firm, Mazars, and banks, Deutsche Bank and Capital One. The second argument, Trump against Vance, stems from a Manhattan grand jury subpoena. Before we turn to our guests, Kimberly, can you give us a brief overview of these cases? Well, sure. So in the first case, the Mazars case, uh, the House Committee on Oversight and Reform had issued a subpoena to the accounting firm for financial records related to the president and his businesses. Now, the committee says that it wants these records so it, it can investigate the adequacy of current government ethics laws. And that came after President Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, testified before the committee that Trump had actually inflated and deflated his assets on his personal financial statements in order to to obtain a bank loan to buy the Buffalo Bills and reduce his state 
tax, and insurance premiums. So that is the Mazars case. In the second case, the Deutsche Bank case, the House Financial Services Committee and the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence issued subpoenas to two banks for the financial records of the president, his family, and the Trump organization. Now, the committees here say they want the records in part to investigate Russian hacking in the 2016 election. And they also say that they want to look into possible money laundering by the Trump organization. So those are the two cases that are going to be argued together. The third and final case is the Vance case. And here, the Manhattan DA's office subpoenaed Mazars looking for tax return and financial records related to hush money payments that the president is alleged to have done in the run-up to the 2016 election. Now, the president has tried to block all of these subpoenas, arguing that Congress and state prosecutors don't have the power to issue them against a sitting president. But courts in New York and D.C. rejected those arguments. So the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case, and all of the subpoenas are on hold. Now, Trump argues that the justices should reject what he claims are unprecedented inquiries into him and his administration. And Congress, the Manhattan prosecutors, and their supporters say that blocking their efforts would result in the president being above the law. So after the arguments, the justices will likely issue a decision by the end of June, just as the 2020 election is heating up. And since we're technically looking at two different hours of arguments, we thought it would be a good idea to bring on two different guests to talk about each case, uh, both who are experienced Supreme Court lawyers who uh, both coincidentally also clerked for uh, Justice Ginsburg, a while Gottschall's Zach Tripp and Virginia Solicitor General Toby Heitens. Zach Tripp is co-head of Weil Gottschall's appellate practice based in the D.C. office. Zach was previously an assistant to the U.S. Solicitor General. He's argued 11 Supreme Court cases, and he previously clerked for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Zach, thanks for joining us on Cases and Controversies. Thanks for having me. So you filed a brief uh, on the side opposing the president on behalf of constitutional law professors, including ones who've served as legal advisors to the president and in the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel. Uh, You note in the brief that there have been major oversight investigations involving almost every modern presidency, uh, including Presidents Nixon and Clinton, and including into their personal information, including uh, financial information, which has been the subject of congressional scrutiny. So how do you see this current case that we're talking about here in the case of uh, Mazars and the bank cases, how does that fit into this long line of congressional oversight? And how do you place that in the, the context of the Supreme Court's cases on the subject? Well, I think that's a big part of what we're trying to do with the brief is to put this particular dispute, right? Uh, this dispute, of course, is between uh, a Democratic House of Representatives or some of its committees, and they're seeking Uh, records from these third-party institutions that belong to uh, the Republican uh, current president. But part of what we're trying to do, and I think the the House is trying to do as well, is to put this in the context, uh, a much broader historical context, where these issues come up again and again and just don't have a defined political valence. Because uh, when you have a, a Democratic president in office, you often have a Republican House or Senate uh, that is wanting to engage in oversight investigations uh, of the conduct uh, of, of top officers, including the, the president or his uh, close advisors. So these are issues that uh, come up again and again. And I think a big part of what we're trying to do in our own brief is to emphasize really the importance of that oversight function. It's sometimes called the informing function 
uh, to the checks and balances uh, of the Constitution, that this is uh, a legitimate legislative function and indeed something that's really quite, quite important under the constitutional design. So, you know, in in your argument and the argument uh, against the president, the it's essentially that, you know, obviously what's happening here is important, but it's almost, you know, unremarkable in a sense from a, a legal perspective. The president frames this as unprecedented. Uh, he says in his brief, this is the first time that Congress has subpoenaed private records of a sitting president. Um, just one quick question on just that factual point. Uh, from your perspective, is that true, that this really is the first time that Congress has done that? I, I mean, I, I think that's a tough sell because of the, I mean, among others, the in Whitewater, there were inquiries into uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, timekeeping records at, the, at her law firm and uh, subpoenas along those lines. And Yes, it's not exactly the same kind of records, but it seems like a pretty close parallel uh, because it's getting at family member of the sitting president and it's grounded in the same, really the same kinds of concerns about uh, corruption, self-dealing, uh, abuse of power, uh, and, and the connection between a president's conduct uh, and financial conduct, maybe from beginning from before he was in office to, to what's happening now when he is in office. So you mentioned that these these issues really shouldn't have uh, a, a real political valence. But the Department of Justice has weighed in uh, in this case. They're not actually a party to the case, but they have filed an amicus brief siding with the Trump administration. Uh, wondering uh, if you can kind of address two things. One, is it odd that the DOJ um, would be involved here and take the position that it's taking? And then two, can you kind of explain what it is that what their position is? Because it's a it's a little bit different than what the president is arguing. Uh, I, I don't think it's odd that the DOJ is involved. Uh, the DOJ typically takes the president's side in uh separation of powers types claims. And one of the arguments in the case is that uh, there is a separation of powers issue here. Although, of course, uh, DOJ has taken the side in past cases, uh, like in during some of the McCarthy era uh, investigations that Congress actually had pretty significant power, hmm. uh, similar to these, although they, they weren't oversight investigations. Uh, they were, um, you know, investigations into ordinary private conduct. Yeah, so we saw a little bit of flavor of this in the litigation over the constitutionality of the CFPB, where uh, the Solicitor General was kind of pressed on this issue that they're not defending um, the constitutionality of the of that agency by Justice Ginsburg. And they mentioned um, that there's an exception to defending these congressional uh, statutes whenever, you know, the president's power is really at issue. And so it, this kind of seems like it, it fits along uh, in those separation of powers um, area. Yes. Plus, the, you know, this this case doesn't involve a, a challenge to uh, a stat like an act of Congress. Right. Uh, you know, like a, a, a statute there, the the government has a, a special duty to defend uh, constitu- uh, the constitutionality of the act, um, but that that isn't implicated here. So I, I, I don't think it's all that unusual for uh, the DOJ to come in and support the, the president. I think it's more that 
the arguments uh, that the government is making, and for that matter, that, that President Trump are, are making, are, are fairly aggressive. So, Zach, uh, in President Trump's brief, he says legislative subpoenas can't be used to engage in law enforcement. And that's uh, part of the argument that uh, Congress is really just trying to do uh, law enforcement here. Now, of, of course, this argument comes up against the backdrop of uh, the Justice Department saying that the president uh, can't be indicted uh, while he's in office. At this, on this same day that this argument is going to be held in the Vance case, the president is arguing that state law enforcement can't look into the president. And so um, what do you make of this legislative law enforcement argument? And really, what would, be, what would be the implications of that? Because if President Trump is successful on all fronts here, it seems then he's completely insulated from any type of investigation whatsoever, right? I think it's more a question of whether you actually understand this to be a kind of law enforcement, which I think a, a big part of our brief and also the House's brief is to say that that's really just misguided. That's the, the wrong way to think about what's happening here. I mean, Congress is not trying to enforce uh, laws that have previously been passed and to punish the president by sending him to jail or anything like that. Uh, what Congress is doing is engaging in ongoing oversight of the conduct uh, of the president to be sure that his conduct in office is not compromised by his personal financial ties. And Congress is considering uh, possible changes to the money laundering laws. That's a, another piece of what's happening here. Uh, and in order for Congress to do either of those things, it needs to know the facts on the ground. I mean, this is like a crucial part of being a legislature is knowing what the facts are so you know how to respond to them. Um, but just because you're investigating the facts, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that what you're doing is law enforcement. I think that's really like the, the heart of uh, the fallacy in, in the government's brief and also in, uh, in the president's brief. Right. So uh, you're right that this issue of whether or not this is legislative or law enforcement is very much um, at issue in the case and in a, a, a big part of how the case is going to come out. Um, wondering how that fits into the backdrop of previous cases, those cases like the travel ban and the census, where the Supreme Court has been hesitant uh, to kind of look behind the reasons that the executive gives um, for enacting certain measures and how that if there's any distinction between the Supreme Court second-guessing Congress's intentions here. I mean, I think that's one of the really interesting themes of the case. Uh, obviously, both the, the president and the DOJ are really drawing out these themes that the subpoenas here are pretextual, that this isn't their real motive. Uh, whereas, of course, in the, the travel ban and the census case, uh, the government was trying to say, no, 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 you can't. Uh, look into those kinds of motives. You should just you should take the official conduct uh, at its word. So I, I think that's uh, an interesting piece of this. And of course, you know, in the in the census case, the court did uh, basically the the court was not willing to accept the the explanation that was given uh, by the Secretary of Commerce, among other things, and actually did basically determine that that was pretextual. And so there is. Uh, some precedent for that, obviously, including r recent precedent. Uh, and I think one of the sort of pieces of this case then becomes whether that kind of inquiry is appropriate here at all. I mean, because you, usually 
usually the court doesn't engage in that kind of analysis of what when Congress passes a law, they, they when Congress passes a law, they ask whether it's rational, not not whether the legislators that voted for it voted for it for good or bad uh, political reasons. So, Zach, I want to get your take on another part of the president's brief here. The way he sets the backdrop is against this era of what the president characterizes as this really unprecedented harassment. Democrats have just launched this resistance. They uh, have they wanted to fire up a subpoena cannon to fire at President Trump is one phrase that the president has in his brief. Um, why isn't that an issue of the president potentially uh, being distracted? It's an issue that comes up in all of the cases that are going to be argued on this issue. The fact that the president can't be unduly distracted in doing his job and having all of these subpoenas being lodged against him for his information would uh, take him away from his work. What do you make of that? So I, I think this is something that we address in our brief, and, and I think we basically recognize the point that the president has special authority under Article Two. He has duties under the Constitution itself, and a separation of powers uh, inquiry sort of kicks in when he can show that there's some kind of actual impairment uh, of his ability to fulfill his duties. But w- one of the strange things that's happened in this case is that the president and DOJ are, are not uh, asserting, you know, based on the facts of this case, that he's, his conduct had actually been impaired. What they're really mostly doing is saying that uh, hy- hypothetical future subpoenas that, that could happen uh, if Congress is given carte blanche and then runs with it, uh, could give rise to uh, impairment and, and real distraction in, in the future. That's really the way they've teed up the case. And I think a, a big piece of our brief is to push back and say, you don't do separation of powers inquiries by asking hypotheticals. You look at the facts of the case, and he just hasn't made the factual showing here. And really, in any event, Congress's interest here is is very strong, uh, considering the possibility of uh, corruption or conflicts of interest involving the president himself, right? That would be uh, a concern of the highest order. Mm-hmm. And so I think even if you have some kind of indirect or attenuated impact on, on the president, it would be easily outweighed. So I, I know it can always be dangerous to try and um, predict what the Supreme Court is going to do. But, you know, in a lot of these high profile cases involving the Trump administration, we've seen the decisions pretty much split along ideological lines um, with the chief justice kind of going back and forth. Are we are you expecting this to be another five, four decision that breaks along ideological lines? Or can you see some uh, ways in which the justices can uh, kind of skew the vote? Uh, that's a good question. I, I hesitate to make any predictions uh, along those kinds of lines in, the, in these cases. I think, of course, a lot of people expect that just because of the ostensible political valence uh, under the facts of this case, uh, that, that, it, that it would split uh, left-right. And so then typically you're looking at the chief or maybe Justice Kavanaugh as being more of, of the swings in the case. But it's a little harder to say with a case like this because the issue, it's so easy to flip it around and to imagine uh, a, a Republican House or Senate 
issuing subpoenas at a, a Democratic president. And like, you don't even need to imagine it, right? That's that's <laughs> Benghazi, that's Whitewater. And there's been discussion recently of uh, issuing subpoenas uh, at Hunter Biden. It, it, these are issues that do recur. And so it's a little harder to know what to make of it. And it means that the, the concerns exist on both sides. I mean, I think that uh, the liberal justices may also be concerned about, you know, overly broad or, or protectual inquiries that, that really don't have a basis in uh, a real legislative function. Um, I think that here there's a sort of an unusually strong showing of the link because it involves uh, concerns about uh, corruption, that the, the undisclosed personal financial dealings of the president are impairing his conduct. That's like a a sort of a quintessential area of oversight, um, but you know you could you could e easily see uh, the the concerns in this case on sort of on, on both sides uh, playing out on the on the left and the right of the court. Well, it'll be a fascinating one, fascinating one to see how that one uh, plays out. Uh, but Zach, thanks so much for uh, giving our listeners a, an inside look at the issue and talking to us about the case. Oh, thanks for having me. It was, uh, it was much fun. So that was the interview with Zach Tripp, who previewed the first case for us. Now let's turn to the second argument of the day in Trump against Vance with Virginia Solicitor General Toby Heightens. Our guest is Toby Heightens, the Virginia Solicitor General. He was previously a professor at the University of Virginia School of Law, where he co-directed the Supreme Court Litigation Clinic. Before that, he was an assistant to the Solicitor General, and he also clerked for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. He's argued 10 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Toby, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So you filed a brief on behalf of a, a number of states that argues that what the president is asking for in this case is really a new kind of presidential immunity. Can you explain that a little bit, what the president is really asking? Sure. Uh, we think what the president is suggesting in this case is essentially that because he is the president of the United States, he is sort of above and above the law and beyond the reach of the courts, even for things that predate his presidency and even for things done purely in a personal capacity. Um, it, it's important to emphasize here that the information that's being sought by the New York grand jury in this case uh, involves matters uh, that the president was involved in as a private citizen when he was a resident of New York uh, and long before he was a political candidate, much before he was the president of the United States. And so we think that the president's reliance on cases in which the Supreme Court has said um, that the president of the United States needs to have some immunity or special privilege or, or heightened uh, consideration before a court can look into things is just fundamentally inconsistent with the notion that the president as a private individual has no special immunity from the judicial system. I understand that the you know information that New York is seeking was information uh, from the president as a private citizen. But now, of course, uh, President Trump is the president, and he argues that if the information here is allowed um, to be sought, then it will really hobble uh, the presidency, you know, just in the whims of local officials. So he's talking not just about the 50 states, but also about all the counties across the country. I mean, what what's your response to that? Well, sure. Two things. I think first and foremost, a lot of his arguments are the exact sort of arguments that President Clinton made in the Paula Jones case that the U.S. Supreme Court um, unanimously rejected. Uh, there were arguments that being subject to scrutiny in a civil suit by a private citizen for activities that occurred 
uh, before President Clinton was president would hobble the presidency and distract him from his duties. And the Supreme Court said nine nothing that that was wrong. Um, and that among other things, the court said there's no tradition of that sort of immunity. And second, there's no history of that sort of harassment that President Clinton was claiming is inevitable. And, and when you look at the president's brief in this case, you see a lot of the same predictions, that this is the sort of thing that will engulf the presidency. Uh, and one of our fundamental responses to that is, you know, where is the evidence of that? We've had a, a nation, we've had a president for well over 200 years. Um, and that just hasn't happened. And the president and DOJ cite no examples of that happening uh, in the past. And I guess our other response is to say it's very troubling, I think, uh, in our system where states are independent sovereigns and independent governments. Uh, it's very troubling to suggest that the court should adopt a rule of special distrust of states and state prosecutors, both because, well, that's not what they do when it involves any other individual. The Supreme Court has said over and over that prosecutors, including state prosecutors, have a presumption of regularity, a presumption of good faith. And there's no particular reason why that presumption should be thrown out the window because the private individual in question here is the president. Um, and, and again, there's just there's no evidence of that either. The president hasn't pointed to any. DOJ hasn't pointed to any. So I think at the end of the day, they're they're both pr they're predictions without any proof. Um, and it's it's pretty intention with again the the, the trust that this, the court has generally had in states and state prosecutors in particular. So Toby, let's say that. It's true that the president is not absolutely immune from state prosecution. The Justice Department says, at the very least, the states should at least be subjected to some kind of heightened standard requirement in terms of a showing that needs to be made when they're looking to get information related to a sitting president. What's wrong with that, at least having some kind of heightened standard, even if the president is not immune? Well, well, I think there's there's two problems with it. The first is uh, the court has never done that before. Uh, the court has refused to do things like that before, uh, and 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 it also that the reason that courts, when they have agreed to do that, um, have done so for reasons that are completely different from the one present here. Um, the cases, that, as we point out in our brief, the cases that the president and the Justice Department cites all involve situations where the underlying material is presidential in nature. These are all cases where the president. Uh, could have a claim of executive privilege. You know, one of the cases they rely on is a case involving President Nixon, where the grand jury was trying to get access to recordings of things that happened in the Oval Office when President Nixon was president. And it, that's the context in which the court has said you may need to have some sort of heightened showing. But there's nothing like that here. Again, all of this, all of these materials that are being requested, not even from the president, but from third parties, involve things that happened when he was a private citizen, before he was the president of the United States. And as we point out in our brief, there, there's just no tradition of requiring a heightened level of scrutiny in that context. So one of the things I think that um, many of our listeners right, might remember is that during oral arguments uh, in this case, uh, President Trump's lawyers said that, you know, the president could shoot someone um, on Fifth Avenue and uh, the states couldn't look into that. Can you kind of um, explore with me kind of the limits of that test and what the president is arguing? Is he arguing that states can't even question witnesses who might be on the street? Are they saying they can't question the president? What What's the extent of that? I think that is the argument that they're making. I think when you read the president's brief, it, it is a really quite strikingly broad claim that when the president is the president, he is absolutely immune from criminal investigation by states for anything. Um, not just you know, not just for prosecution, not just for conviction, but that he is immune from investigation of any sort. Um, 
And, you know, these cases themselves don't involve anybody trying to ask questions of the president. They involve people sending subpoenas to third parties who have a relationship with the president uh, as the holder of some of his records. So, you know, I, I don't know what their answer to be. They, can they question witnesses? But, but some of the language in their brief comes pretty close to saying that you can't investigate the president while he's the president and at least potentially speaking to witnesses would cover that. And I, I think that just shows that the breadth uh, the extremity and the unprecedented nature of, of the position, because the Supreme Court has never said anything remotely like that. Um, and I think it would be quite striking and wrong for them to do so. So, Toby, I have a, a practical question here. Obviously, you, you noted that some of the sort of parade of horribles hasn't come to pass in our history in terms of uh, the president being uh, sort of unduly distracted during his time in office. But kind of on the flip side of that, is it if states weren't allowed to investigate the president while he's in office, is that really that big of a deal in terms of the states all across the country? Are there really that many instances of states and localities wanting to investigate the president and not being able to do so? I mean, what's what's really the, the practical harm there in terms of the impact we'll see if you lose here? Sure. I, I think the practical harm is, is really twofold. One involves the, the individual who happens to be president. And then the other involves other people because, you know, so first, when it, when it comes to the individual, I think you're right. There haven't been, very fortunately, many examples in our history when there was um, the need or the appropriateness of doing a state level pro- uh, investigation of an individual while they're president of the United States. Um, we've been lucky in that regard. And let's let's hope it stays that way. Um, I guess one practical consequence is you know, one of the reasons that we have statute of limitations is that as time goes by, memories fade, evidence gets stale, it becomes harder and harder to do it. And so I think, in fact, DOJ, in an opinion by the Office of Legal Counsel, had previously taken the position that although DOJ has long been of the view that you can't prosecute uh, an individual when they are president, DOJ itself has previously said you can investigate when someone is president and because of the need to preserve evidence, because of the need to prevent um, people from escaping justice, you know, that that to the extent there is any sort of argument that the president can't be prosecuted while he's in office, um, that's always been against the understanding that he could be prosecuted after he leaves office in the event that the president did something, um, something illegal or of a criminal nature. Um, but, but the point is, if you can't even investigate the individual while he is president, there's, there's a real danger that you'll never be able to, to bring charges at any point in the future. But there's another danger here as well, which we point out in our brief, and it's that grand juries don't investigate individual people. They investigate groups of people and groups of organizations. And as we explain in the brief, the, the New York District Attorney in this case is, is investigating a number of people who are not the President of the United States, have never been the President of the United States, and are never going to be the President of the United States. And the information that the district attorney is seeking may be highly relevant and critical even in determining the guilt or innocence of other individuals who have no claim whatsoever to immunity. And so there, there's a real danger that if the, if, the president, uh, if the president's arguments in this case are accepted, it will not only uh, potentially prevent something against him at a future time if that's appropriate, but it could also prevent um, the prosecution or the exoneration of individuals who have no claim to presidential immunity at all. So I'm wondering if we could talk about the federalism interests here. You know, maybe at least in recent history, politically anyway, it's been seen as sort of something that conservatives have used to defeat more liberal arguments here. 
you know, we have a Republican president. In some ways, we're seeing that kind of go the other way. Can you talk about the federalism interest that you have on behalf of the states here? I, I think our fundamental interest, again, Virginia has never, to the best of my knowledge, done a, a criminal investigation of an individual who happens to be the president of the United States. So it, it's not that sort of that level of interest. I think what really concerned us and what was a big part of of our decision uh, to get involved here was really twofold. One is is any sort of suggestion that the president is above or beyond the law for things that he does in his capacity as a private citizen while he is a resident of one of the states. So that's one angle. I, I think another angle is is what we find very troubling is this suggestion, both by the president and by the Department of Justice, that the courts should adopt some rule that is particularly suspicious of states and state prosecutors. There's there's arguments that are made um, that it's important. Uh, essentially, the argument that we're seeing made is that, you know, maybe it's one thing in order to be able to have a prosecution brought by federal prosecutors, but you should be particularly um, suspicious of and disruptive of uh state's ability to do things. And I think that is something that we found particularly troubling. All right. Well, Toby, thanks so much for coming on to Cases and Controversies and talking about this issue with us. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. So those were uh, two really interesting interviews. Yeah, they were good. Um, it's re- going to be really interesting to see uh, what the justices do in those cases, whether it is going to be, as you were saying, one of these 5-4 situations or maybe more of a situation along the lines of the Nixon case where the court made a bold, unanimous statement on a big issue. Right. And we saw, I think, both Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh really praised Nixon and that decision and the court's unanimous rulings there as a, a, way, a time when the court really rose above politics. So it'll be interesting. Although I wonder if instead of 5-4, it'll be 5-2. Who are the two? Well, President Trump, <laughs> President Trump has called on both Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, and Justice Sonia Sotomayor to recuse in all cases uh, involving him. So... This would be one of those. The court has not responded to the president's request, but my guess is that those two justices aren't going anywhere. No. Well, we did see Sotomayor recently recuse in that Colorado faithless electors case. Apparently, she had just remembered that she was like good friends with the Best main person buds. in the yeah. case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, yeah, I guess the other thing that'll be interesting to see is uh, whether these arguments now are actually going to happen and whether, whether we're going to be allowed to sit in there as the press or whether we're going to be shut out there's gonna be a live stream or what (coughs) thank you (laughs) i've been holding that in for a while (laughs) all right well that's gonna do it for this episode be sure to follow along with all the latest supreme court and coronavirus news at news.wherevervego.com news.bloomberglaw.com news.bloomberglaw.com man Taxes and accounting are complicated, but finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. I'm Siri Belusu, and I'm Amanda Icone. Listen to Talking Tax, the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you, from what Congress is working on, to legal rulings, to the global digital tax debate. Download and subscribe to Talking Tax wherever you get your podcasts.